Hello and welcome to the latest Week in Review. I'm Michael Curzon, Bournemouth's editor, and I'm joined as always by Luke Perry. Luke, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, Curzon. How are you? Very good. I believe you've just finished your dissertation, haven't you? Well, I've got introduction and conclusion to go, but we, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Marvellous. And by SD Wicket. Sam, how are you today? I'm good, Michael. I uh, finished mine two years ago, so nothing to celebrate here. <laughs> there you are. Still, uh, still reveling in the in the writing you did then. Still, uh, st- still living on that ego boost. Good, right. So today we're we're afraid that we're going to have to delve once again into the the uh, very present matter of lockdowns, and I think the biggest story of the week is the one which I've been reading upon most um, as three of us is that of the imposition or the threat of imposition of ten year sentences, prison sentences for people who lie about their travel history. This, of course, is in light of um, those who travel into the country from especially red zone countries, as they're called, um, having to enter isolation for 10 days in hotels, for which they'll have to pay £1,750, no small fee. Um, But of course, somebody might choose us to escape this isolation to uh, forge their documents and say that rather than having travelled in from a, a red zone country, they've travelled from somewhere not on my list. Um, and if they're found to have done this, they can be given either a five to ten thousand pound fine or a maximum sentence of ten years in prison. Now, I, I often think, Sam, that if we um, if we could have done, if we'd known each other, then it would have been good to have started this podcast at the beginning of the first lockdown last March, so as to see how the mood changed over the year. Um, And I think if we had, and even not having done so and only done it for the last six weeks, we can still tell uh, that the government has finally gone absolutely insane. This is just, to say that lockdown is disproportionate is one thing, but this sentence is absolutely unbelievable, I think. I mean, one of the most things, uh, interesting things around this topic um, is comparing it to other such sentences. So 10 years, you can get 10 years in prison for these things, possession of a firearm with the intent to cause fear of violence, indecent assault, the administration of poison so as to endanger life. And a 10 year sentence is greater than that which can be given to some sexual offenses involving minors for which only seven years can be given. Yes. So the government then, as, as Jonathan Sumption wrote in the Telegraph uh, earlier this week, now believes that to say you came from one country rather than another is worse and worthy of a greater punishment than some sexual offences involving minors. Sam, what do you think the government is thinking when coming up with this sort of policy? Well, I mean, the the first thing is there's some things that you almost have to laugh at because if you don't, you'll cry. Committing the the cardinal sin of arriving from Portugal and saying you came from Spain, you'd you'd be in there with people who committed severe GBH. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it's absolutely baffling. And it's, um, it, just, it just shows, as, as I've mentioned in the past, the fact that I, 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 can't, I can't really trust the government when they say things anymore. Because the incrementalism of, of, of the restrictions is, is from what we were told this time last year it gives me no other re- no other conclusion than to say that I don't particularly trust my own government anymore. Mm, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the frustrating things about this, and also quite revealing of the Conservative Party, is how how much uh, must have changed over the last year relating to this sort of policy. So the, the government criticises um, to an extent. Though Boris was quite soft on it the other week. Uh, the idea of woke. And identity politics and the sort of politics where, you know, one month you use one term to describe uh, some form of minority and it's acceptable and the next month you use it and you can lose your job. Well, the same thing rings true with this because last year, 18 million people entered the UK by air in the three months prior to the first lockdown with no screening. 18 million in that time. Yet now, if someone does so and comes in from uh, one country claiming to have gone to another, they get 10 years in prison, at least. Now, Keir Starmer points out that this is an empty threat. Um, having, having worked close to the law, he knows that this sort of sentence is rarely administered. But the, 
the idea that the government sees it as being a fit punishment itself is, is quite revealing. Luke, what about the, the process which has brought this punishment into force? What are the implications of this on just our democratic system? Well, Starmer may, may claim it's an empty threat, but times have changed since last March. The, our whole society was upended in the blink of an eye. Centuries-old freedoms been sent to the dustbin of history. Now our rights only consist of privileges, where the because as the government can take them away at any notice, it's a say it, well it can apply it now applies to international air travel, and well it, how can we be a free country anymore when we're um, of um, the Eastern European Cold War states trying desperately to control the um flow of people in, into its country and, death and monitoring them to such a degree. And this is also part of um, the Western government's copied China in its response to the coronavirus, barring covering it up. And China had severe lockdowns. China welded people in their homes and made people starve just so they didn't spread outside. And one part of China's lockdown policy is if anyone has come into contact with COVID, they're sent to um, this mini village where they're locked in a, in a room for 21 days straight and they have the privilege of paying for it. <laughs> Similar to the uh, hotel quarantine that's about to be introduced here. Hmm. I mean, the, the implications, I think, on the rule of law of this are, are horrifying, actually. I mean, Jonathan Sumption made a very good point in his article, which I, I mentioned in The Telegraph. He said that, um, that penal policy um, seeks to match a sentence to the gravity of the crime. Now, we know, everybody knows, even the government knows, that the, the gravity of this crime does not match a 10-year sentence. That's quite obvious. But Sumption goes on to say that disproportionate sentences are only given when those enforcing the sentences know uh, that it's unlikely people are going to be caught for conducting this crime. Therefore, even if only, say, 10% of the people who are forging their documents are caught, the message is sent and a deterrent is caused that people still will get fined. Even if only five people were found out to have broken the rules and were sent to prison for 10 years, other people who might think of doing so would very likely change their mind. But that, of course, is not only unfair, but is a ginormous slap in the face of the, the idea of the rule of law, the principle which the Conservative Party is supposed to be a proud defender of, yet clearly in this case is stamped all over. And the point I was making earlier as well, the way in which this has been introduced, there's been no vote in Parliament on whether or not this is appropriate. Instead, the government has included these restrictions under the Forgery and Counterfeiting Act of 1981. And in terms of the opposition which has been given to the measure, there's an interesting quote from a conservative, in quotes, MP, Alberta Costa, who said, we're currently in a once in a century crisis. So this is justified. Well, surely the fact that we're able to use measures introduced in the last century, which were under completely different pretenses, the forgery and counterfeiting Act 1981, that we're able to manipulate this in such a way that people can be threatened with 10 years in prison just for saying they came from one country when they came from another, shows that this isn't a once in a century crisis. And that if we allow such severe measures to be enforced now, they'll be able to be enforced again and again and again throughout our lifetime and through our children's lifetimes. It seems to me a dangerous precedent has been set here. Well, I mean, we, we as I mentioned last week with the Myanmar story is um, the the threats to liberty posed by emergency powers are <clears throat> self-evident at this point. We have we have a government that is ruling by decree, and like our our voice in the halls of power supposedly is our members of parliament who vote on our behalf. But there, there's been no vote on this, or the the only votes that, that they've had have been on on uh, you know tears and lockdowns. But I mean, <clears throat> and the set the second part of of our accountability of, of power is is um, the opposition who have been poofless on this you know Keir Starmer's you know stamped his feet and you know and made his rhetoric but he hasn't made any attempt to actually question the validity of locking people up for 10 years for the crime of you know just saying you came somewhere that, that he didn't I mean it's it, it it's it's baffling and it's terrifying the same from the media the the idea of of, of vaccine passports which I think we might discuss later 
um, has been discussed in the papers recently, and their coverage hasn't been um, really critical of the implications on liberty of vaccine passports. Instead, they've introduced them as being the saviour of our summer holiday. Government introducing vaccine passports and we can all finally travel abroad, hurrah. Um, I mean, one can't help but think, um, there's an interesting piece in the Conservative Woman last week, um, about who the major advertiser is for the newspapers at the moment, which of course is the government, since uh, most businesses are either closed or unable to accept business in any case. Yet the government's business of scaring the population is currently thriving. Um, that, that MP who I quoted a moment ago, Alberto Costa, also said uh, that this, this sentence of 10 years is, quote, about reinforcing um, in people's minds the importance of the COVID restrictions and abiding by them. That seems to me to be other words for saying that this policy is about making people scared and continuing Operation Terror, which, Luke, you've written on quite a bit. I mean, Operation Terror is in full swing now. What, what else might the government do if it can reach this far? What else could be uh, within possible range of its grasp? Well, when I uh, heard the story from the Conservative woman, uh, it opened my eyes as to how Operation Terror, just the, the sequel to Operation Fear of the Remain campaign, just amplified has been able to encroach on public minds. Now, how governments expand their power is through, number one, them wanting to, but number two, the key ingredient is hysteria. And we uh, wrote an article recently where we saw this 20 years ago with the war on terror. People were <coughs> justifiably terrified of um, international acts of terrorism with the Twin Towers coming down, and that allowed the governments to um, introduce counter-terrorism bills, which have been on the books for years prior. The UK's terrorism bill of 2000, a year before the Twin Towers fell. And uh, I think the government is now looking into operation, is using Operation Terror to get people vaccinated. As you said, Curzon, they're willing to continue the lockdowns if people don't <laughs> vaccinate themselves, which in my books is mandatory vaccination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're I mean, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think of the phrase mandatory vaccination, you think of people in hazmat suits coming to your door and holding you down and injecting you. It's, 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 you know, it's never going to be that direct. It's always going to be, you know, your employer will demand it or you can't leave the country if you don't have it or you can't do this. And, you know, it's the threat of living on the wrong side of a two-tiered society that is, is where it becomes mandatory, not, not direct force. Mm. And we're already seeing this to a large extent as well, um, where, where employers are saying we will not hire people who don't have the vaccine. One of the largest private care home providers in Britain recently said this, and they, they noted that they wouldn't fire those who already work for them who haven't taken the vaccine, but would, what was the word, it was something like, uh, well, they would basically nudge them into doing it. They would pressure them to take the vaccine. Um, and we're seeing the same from the government at the moment on vaccines where we're told it is a voluntary vaccine. You don't have to take it if you don't want to. The evidence is here that the vaccine is, is safe and that's fine. That's all very well and good. Um, but you don't have to take it if for whatever reason you don't want to. But then in the next sentence, if not enough people, enough in quote marks, uh, vaccinate, then you will stay in lockdown. That's what Patrick Vallant said yesterday, and, and Boris too was saying that the easing of restrictions would be much slower if not, quote, enough people do vaccinate. Look, you, you wrote quite well on, on the, the question of uh, vaccinations in our, in our December issue. Um, and this, this imposition of 10-year prison sentences seems to be an extension of the same thinking, uh, which has led pretty much all of the lockdown policy. Now, the most important question is this Alberto Costa said it's a once in a century crisis, and people have said it's only temporary. Boris Johnson still calls himself the most liberty loving prime minister, um, not as a joke, apparently. Um, when this has ended, in whatever year that may be, will these encroachments on liberty, which are in the statute book now, stay in place, or do you think that there might be? some opposition to them carrying on, that some people might stand up and say, actually, let's get rid of this now that the, the crisis has passed. No, they, they will be here forever. And it, 
it will be only a matter of time before another disease comes along or as some politicians in the continent have been talking about having lockdowns to fight climate change now that lockdowns have been the precedent and have allowed governments to amass so much power all over the world well, the state would want to keep them and you use i mean you talked about the, the forgeries act in 1981 the, although democratic governments are short-term thinking they will still notice that these laws are uh, ready to use at any point in time public i think public would, would be the worst they as minute the covid crisis over they will forget the tory government may even increase its um support in the polls because hey look we, we've defeated covid everyone i mean it would take admittedly it would be very difficult to reverse from the current policy because they've gone so far in the, the hole has been dug so deep that it's it's not just a matter of stepping out there's a lot of climbing to be done um but i think if, if boris pulled that off if boris said actually we've gone too far this is no longer measured or proportionate um that that would show such political courage mm. and worth that even i might go out onto the doorstep and offer a little clap I mean, but um, yeah. i just can't see that happening that's 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 something that uh, i think Hitchner said that it, that it would require um the government to to sort of grovel at our feet and admit they'd made a horrible mistake, which I mean is unlikely. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole point of this is that the only point of emphasis, the only point of focus, has been the coronavirus. Liberty has been forgotten about within all of these discussions. The economy has been forgotten about. I think it was before the second lockdown that uh, a parliamentarian asked the government for its um, assessment of the economic impact of the imposition of another national lockdown. And the government replied, we haven't had one. We've not looked into the, the, the possible implication of this, which, which demonstrates that they, they just didn't bear it in their minds. It was not present. Same for mental health, same for the screening of cancer and other uh, physical diseases. And the, the longer this goes on, whether or not lockdown is effective at, at quashing the coronavirus, it's certainly true that lockdown is effective at, at, at weakening physical, mental health, liberty, the economy, which is something we'll talk about next, and, and most other aspects of life. So the sooner we can, we can leave it, the better. Sam, I think that's probably a good point actually go, to go on to the next point, which is the impact of lockdown on the economy. And you've been looking at the, um, some of the signs of what we might be facing over the next decade um, based on the government's decision to put us into lockdown. Oh, yes. I mean, um, so uh, as, as you said, the only thing that's being uh, given any attention whatsoever is the, is the coronavirus death toll. Um, no, nothing else, you know, is, is really deemed that important, e even enough for a for a preliminary investigation. So what's happened in so what's come to light recently is that last year, the UK's GDP contracted by 9.9%, the largest annual fall on record, considering that during like the, the, the record started before the, the, um, the Great Depression. You know, before 2008, you know, consider those two events, you know, collapses in the global economy. And this is the largest contraction on, on, on record. I mean, it shows the, 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 the press through its approach has, has um, I mean, cause we all know by now that, that the, the government is absolutely terrified of the press. It's, it, it, it's held the government back from doing so much in, so much in the last year. Um, and it's forced the government into this narrow view of just seeing the uh, infections and deaths as being, you know, the the prime indicator of whether the government has failed or not. Um, meanwhile, um, I mean, we, we all we all knew this, right? People are losing jobs, people are losing their businesses, people have, you know, built these <clears throat> built businesses for, from the ground up for over decades, and that, that that's lost now. And um, I think, and we aren't going to really see the fallout of this uh, for for another year or so. But when we do. And we're starting to see it now is that um we've seriously been failed by not only the government but um all the other uh guardians of our, of our way of life i agree sam and i think it's it's really going to hit us the impact of of lockdown on the economy when 
the furlough scheme ends, which is set at the moment for May, though it might, of course, be extended. And when lockdown eases and people can go back to work, only to find that where they previously worked no longer exists. It's just a storefront with the banners down and maybe the windows smashed in from some of the BLM riots last year, perhaps. Or, or um, just, I think people currently are accepting the state of affairs we're in because of the furlough scheme and because even if their job uh, workplace was still open, they wouldn't be going to it uh, because of lockdown. So when people can go to work to find that there's nothing there, that's when the realisation will hit us. Only, of course, too late that the economy is in, is in dire state of repair, in need of repair. Well, I've, I've got a quote here from uh, Tej Parikh, who's the uh, chief economist at the Institute of Directors, who um, I think sums it up, sums up the disconnect here perfectly. He says that this the drop in the economy uh, underscores the challenge of the road ahead, which, I mean, ignores the fact that this is entirely self-inflicted. Mm. You know, as if, oh, it's a shame, but, you know, we've we got to do it. But there's, there's, there's not even been the attempt to find a way of mitigating this virus if that doesn't destroy everything around it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the papers are guilty of the same thing. The headlines are always pandemic has caused this, pandemic has caused that. Now, of course, we can't bury our heads in the sand. It's obvious that whether we lock down or not, and the countries which haven't had severe lockdowns still show this, the economy would have been badly hit. This is a crisis. There's no denying that. A lot of people are dying from it. And otherwise, people would, even without government operation terror, be fearful of going out to certain places and gathering it to such extent and that's completely acceptable i can understand that no problem with that um but um to say that the economic ruin has been caused solely by the pandemic is wrong i think i think the scale of damage will be greater because of lockdowns much greater um especially on uh, employment rates after this i mean one of the things we're talking about whilst off air is is um, the the distinction of um, students who are employed or or just students? Um, now, of course, we we know that one of the reasons uh, sixth form has been opened up as widely as it has, and one of the aims of of universities being uh, taking fifty percent of the population now of of young population is uh, one of the hidden names at least was so that the unemployment figures could remain low because people who are you know unemployed or not in training well they are in training they're students they're in education um but whilst that whilst people students who lose their jobs won't figure in the figures so to speak it's still true i think that a lot of students will exit this lockdown without jobs because it's mostly young people who work in sort of retail food retail serving and service jobs which have been mostly hit by um by the lockdowns and i think that that is going to have pretty bad bad impacts on on their education for one um but also their their lives coming out of uh, of university um having not worked so much not earning money while studying and then uh, afterwards not having many jobs to go into I always ponder how uh, high public support would be for lockdowns if we didn't have the furlough scheme in. You know, Operation Terror is one, but there's definitely paying people to uh, do nothing for months on end and thinking it's a big holiday and not being told that, hey, you may not have a job to go back to. This is a similar thing as well. The opposite happened in the US where they didn't have a furlough scheme. The minute they shut down businesses, unemployment just skyrocketed by millions overnight. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and then they had to spend months bickering and, and negotiating uh, uh, stimulus checks, um, as opposed to providing you know either basic um, income support or not locking down. And and America is fascinating because because of obviously it's still to a degree federalized. You do see um, differences in different states. I mean, uh, I think lately people have been comparing uh, Florida and California. California instituted a near total lockdown, whereas Florida opened up, a, they, they haven't even got a mask mandate in Florida. Um, and the rates of infection are about the same. Mm. The only difference being is that the, the, the economy of Florida isn't, isn't collapsing, whereas in, in, in California, I mean, it, it's, it's not looking good at all. Yeah, it's one of the interesting points about lockdowns generally, 
that it, it's, it's difficult to prove whether or not they work or they don't work. We might be able to find out with some inquiry if it's impartial in the decades to come. But right now, it's very difficult to tell whether it is doing a good job in, in lowering hospitalisation rates and infection rates, or if that's happening for other reasons. Because as you say, when you look at different states, uh, some which have enforced uh, greater lockdowns, some which haven't, or different countries from across the world, it's, it's difficult to make distinctions. And of course, there's so many factors which play into things, population density, um, sort of immunities uh, generally, and people's, the public health in the countries before, um, that it's very difficult to tell. But you can tell from what you've just said in, in between California and Florida as a, as a case study, the difference in economic impact mm. on places which have, have had greater lockdowns, which is an yeah. interesting point to make. That's the one. It depends entirely when you look at um, what lockdown does, um, which metric you look at it under. I mean, you can either look at it under purely the lens of coronavirus, which is, I mean, the whole point of this segment is that that's not the sole metric or the effect on the quality of life. Yeah. I mean, it, when, it, when it comes to, you know, the actual act of mitigating the virus, the, the jury is still out and the, the debate is still there. But in terms of um, the effect on the quality of life, there is no question about that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, which a lot of our regular listeners wouldn't need us to make a distinction on, but it's still worth saying that when we talk about the impact on the economy, our interest isn't as much, well, isn't at all, actually, the, the level of GDP and, and whether the spike is rising or lowering and all this rubbish about Mexican sombrero hats with figures and economic data and all that rubbish that the Adam Smith Institute might obsess over, but instead the impact of people not being able to work on their social and family lives, on the communities, on, on, on for example, pubs which have been opening communities for decades, um, if not longer, and which people have gone to every night and, and met each other and socialised with each other and created lives with each other, which now just don't exist. Community hubs, no longer there. And then people who um, were struggling before the coronavirus anyway, because let's not pretend that um, whilst matters in terms of liberty and the economy have got worse over this time, that things were perfect before. But people who are already struggling, who now don't have work and will struggle even more to provide for their family, to, to feed and to house them. The stress that that causes, I mean, a, a recent study showed that I think it was 48% of people who aren't currently in education or uh, training or work, which is obviously a very high amount of people uh, due to current circumstances, not only are fed up, which seems a pretty loose term, but are unable to cope with life. That's how they feel. Very serious thing to say that. Um, so the impact on quality of life, on community feelings, and other things which bind a nation together and make it a nation rather than just a place where people exist uh, are under great threat. Hmm. It, it amazes me how the mental health was swept under the rug along with the economy when COVID came along because for years prior, governments have been concerned with mental health, mental health funding's increased, that we've had a minister for loneliness. That's a, I think they're busy right now. But... Um, so it's just how quickly priorities change when um, trends change because the trend before was uh, mental health to try and break the stigma now it's just a wholly utilitarian carpet bombing tactics against the coronavirus mm. <laughs> well um this is what i was saying to you michael when when you're you're on my podcast which is that um the only attempt of addressing mental health is to do what the government's done this entire um pandemic is to pull a, a, an amount of money out of their backside um throw an expert at the problem without addressing the root of it it's an interesting point that you just made there as well luke about how we've suddenly forgotten about mental health i mean amongst conservative circles it's not too long ago i can't imagine that mental health was not taken very seriously sort of the thing where people say oh just grow up forget out the problem you it's being made up it's some sissy thing it's this sort of language you can imagine around it and I think that's one of the um, one of the ways in which we've progressed in recent years that we take mental health more seriously um, and it sort of happened at the same time that the government has taken more interest in the climate debate although a very skewed approach to it being globalistic rather than than localized but it's interesting that that during the pandemic as you say 
mental health has been forgotten about by by the authorities but such things as the the globalized approach to global warming is just as strong as it used to be if not stronger i mean as you said luke people some people are even suggesting that we we lock down in order to help uh, the climate at some stages um it, it it seems strange and i suppose it reveals that the the conservative parties and the general political establishment approach to mental health was more of a veneer in order to make it seem as though it cared rather than a proper um, proper desire to ensure that the mental health of the nation was in as good a state as it could possibly be. Yeah, clearly what was just was just a trend as, as the political class do leap on trends, BLM for another, they just need, need to appear popular. And um, with climate change, that's that that will be the next excuse to amass more power. Declare an emergency on climate, which is what climate alarmists have been trying to do for years now, and we'll be in lockdown for eternity. Because the truth in the last year that the the threshold of the British people for civil disobedience is remarkably high. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, other European countries, you don't see this too much in the press, but other European countries are in turmoil at the minute over what's going on with lockdown. People just rejecting it. Mm. Um, not doing this anymore. You've done such a great amount of damage. We've accepted the rules for this amount of time, but no more. In Britain, we're, we're rolling over, aren't we? We're lapping it up. Mm. Strange. Supposed to be the birthplace of liberty. Um, maybe also, maybe also the, the burial ground. Yes, yes, yes. Well, there you are. Before we before we become too miserable, although the next topic won't exactly help with, <laughs> with that trend of thinking, we'll we'll move on to the last story of the week. So this one is a bit bit more of a, a cultural touch, and we'll talk about the the jolly topic of cancel culture. Luke, what have you been reading this week? Well, well, well yes, to, to avoid uh, three stories this week being on lockdown, I thought I might spice it up a bit with them. Um, the ever so joyful cancel culture. Now, as is routine now, a story cropped up in the press and Twitter alerting us all that yet another right-leaning individual has been um, dragged through the Twitter mob and fired from their profession. And this week's victim is the actress Gina Carano, who um, played one of the main characters in that children's TV show. You may have heard of it, Mandalorian. Yeah. So she's very famous nowadays. And uh, she's a very rare breed. She's a vocal conservative in the entertainment industry. But uh, <laughs> it appears that the, the left, which is dominant in the um, entertainment industry, has uh, finally scalped her. And she, uh, what, what, what um, done her in, so to speak, was that she, she posted um, a photo on her social media about how the persecution of Jews in Nazi Germany was made possible from a dehumanization and the wider public joining in with the elite and vilifying this group of people. And she compared that to how people treat their political opponents in the United States. And all the media attention to, to this point has just been filled with spin. They've been yeah, calling well, it anti no, anti Semitic. Yeah, nice coming on that point. I mean, when, when you said you were going to talk about this this week, I'd not heard the actress. Um, I'm off Twitter now, so hadn't seen the, the trending, so I had to look it up. I went on the BBC article, and this is, this is what I read. Um, that In the post, the, uh, the former MMA fighter compared um, hating someone for their political views, that's a quote, an end quote, uh, in the US to, to the treatment of the Jewish people during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. So I read that to you earlier, Luke, and just to clarify that that was that was the the sticking point. But you pointed out to me that that was spin. What what is it that the BBC has has um, got wrong there? Total spin, total spin. Well, well, the BBC are, are part and parcel of this liberal establishment that, when cancel culture is used, try to um, twist the truth. And they, they did it with uh, Roger Scruton with the New Statesman. Twist what he said. Did it with David Starkey. Uh, did it with Lord Sumption recently, which we've talked about on, on this podcast. So it's it's very very tribal cancel culture, and yeah. um, it's very selective in how it's applied. So she was fired from Lucasfilm, saying she won't be appearing anywhere, so she won't be acting with them again. But uh, of course, the double stands are all too clear. I mean, Hollywood's a liberal industry; everyone has to be openly political, but just for the right opinions. Right. So uh, the actor Jean Boyega, who played 
think one of the main characters in the recent Star Wars trilogy, he attended the BLM protests in London last summer. Yeah. No, no blowback. Uh, Pedro Pascal, the guy who plays Mandalorian behind the mask, he um, um, fired back at Carano's political posting by comparing um, the children in migrant detention camps in the United States to concentration camps. Nothing will happen to his career. Anything he'll improve upon it. And it's, it's just so clear that it's, it's not accountability culture. It's just full-on persecution of the right. If I could just jump in here. So uh, I've got the statement here. So th this, is, this is what she posted. It said, um, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by, not by soldiers, but by their neighbours, even by children, because history is edited. Most people today don't realise that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbours hate them for being Jews. How is that any different to hate someone for their, their political views? It's what it is. It's a, it's a statement of historical fact that calls for unity, non-violence and political toleration. I mean, that's what she was canned for. It's, it's, it's worrying. And you mentioned Pedro Pascal, who's been making um, comparisons to the Holocaust uh, and the Nazis, but basically for the entire Trump presidency. It's, mm. it's not about, um, oh, she's being held to account for cynically using the Holocaust to push a political message, because if that was the case, then the entirety of Hollywood would be cancelled by now. Yeah. Well, so this, the spin that you talk of there becomes obvious in the, the BBC piece that I talked about then. So, so as you've just pointed out, she's talking about the dehumanization of, of Jewish people and, and the hatred around that, um, rather than comparing the hatreding of people due to their opinions to the Holocaust directly, which is what the BBC claims. Now, the next sentence in the BBC article uh, points out that millions of Jews, uh, are Jewish people and other minorities were killed at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. Um, just to sort of rub in the spin that it's trying to portray that she was uh, directly comparing treatment of political opponents today to the Holocaust and to let us know just how uh, bad she is for doing so. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the point she was trying to make, and again, it, as you said, it, it's the same as with the Starkey thing where Starkey, uh, I mean, admittedly, I, I think she probably could have been a bit clearer with that. Um, but it's, it's like with Starkey, Starkey, um, was was making a point, and and the the lack of um, absolute clarity um, led to led to spin and led to uh, serious repercussions that were arguably undeserved. This is the this is the same thing as that. It's um, yeah. Mm. I, mean, I mean, it's interesting interesting point that you make that she should have been more clear with what she said. This is um, it seems to be the main tactic now of the. Um, of the, the woke mob, you could say, that people are targeted not for expressing their serious opinion. It's not the actual thing they're, they're meaning to say that is criticised. It's what they say in a, in a not so clear way, shall we say. It's what they're misinterpreted purposefully of saying. So with, with, with Starkey, um, I think people knew that he wasn't um, using the word damn as an expression of hatred towards a, a, a minority. Um, instead, he was using it as an emphasis of his point. Yet, despite that, they came in and said, aha, you've made a mistake. We're going to interpret that mistake as being um, almost a Freudian slip, I suppose. That was what you would really think. And um, there's an interesting story on the cover of the Mail earlier this week, um, which I was meant to write about, but time flies by, where clearly, um, again, the conservatives who claim to hate this sort of identity politics and mistake tripping are guilty of the exact same thing. The, the cover of the mail, which is taken um, from uh, conservative party uh, MPs who sort of were the basis of the story, was criticising a Labour shadow cabinet minister for saying that COVID, this is the headline, COVID is the gift that keeps on giving. Now, that was a complete... Um, a, a copy of what happened to Starkey, of what happened to the, the actress in this case, where they purposefully misinterpreted and took the context out of what was being said, because of course what this shadow minister was really saying was that there's a lot of interesting um, matters to do with the law 
because he was, he was talking to the conference relating to the law, which we can take from this. So, you know, he was, it, it was an unfortunate phrase, admittedly, but he wasn't saying that he was glad of, of people dying in the virus. He was just saying there's plenty to learn from it in terms of the law, in the same way that Starkey was just emphasising his point, and in the same way that the actress in this case was not comparing um, what's happening now directly to the Holocaust, but saying that the process of dehumanisation is strikingly similar. Um, it's, it's not a case of people making mistakes that's landing in hot water. It's the case of the maliciousness of, of the opposition actively yeah. seek actively seeking out an excuse. Yeah, it, it's it's a it, it's a Kafka trap, really. I mean, you, it, it's and it's stripping away all the nuance of language. It's like unless you speak directly and clearly and essentially yeah. say what we want you to say and how we want you to say it. I mean, Gina Carano will probably never work again in Hollywood unless there's unless there's like a massive change in in the in the makeup of it. This this person's career is over now. Yeah, I mean, the the, the technique is so when you think about it, so childish. Just mm -hmm. waiting for someone to slip on their words. I remember hearing I can't remember the exact wording, but let's say there was a um a, a politician who was accused by his critics of being racist for one thing or another um, and in a speech said um we are uh we are a, a racist party when he meant to say anti-racist party or something like that it was something similar to that sort of thing and the people in the crowd who were against him suddenly cheered him and ah, i told you so you finally said it you've admitted it you tripped on your words as though that was them winning the argument someone merely making a mistake in speech which is so common we all do it. I think we've done it at least, well, in the uh, in the triple figures for this podcast. Um, yet that's almost the primary primary tool of discussion by the people who wish to to cancel their opponents, just to wait for a mistake and to use that as an excuse to sever their heads. It's 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 malicious and it's so deeply disturbing. Mm. Also, I mean, it it it's like the. It, it 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 being defeated is 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 reliant on um, everyday people just kind of saying no. I, I refuse to cancel, cancel this person. But the problem is that even in this day and age, um, the vast majority of people are, are tethered at the hip to the mainstream information apparatus that they're only ever going to get the spin. Hmm. You know, I, I, most of the people, at least the majority of people who have responded to this story, probably didn't see the original post it, it, it's all secondhand mm. yeah. well same with the starkey one actually mm. where um when i first read the story starkey says dan blacks i thought oh my goodness he's really put his foot in that's terrible mm. awful to say why would he say that unbelievable i i agree with the criticism when I then listened to the clip and realised, as anybody who listens to it does, that he was using it as a point of emphasis, not an expression of hatred, um, I thought, ah, I can see why this has been taken out of context. Again, with this story, when I read the BBC line and they quoted, they quoted, I mean, when you read the post earlier, um, there was a decent amount of stuff to be read. The only words in quote were hating someone for their political victims, uh, view, sorry in the BBC article, what's that, five words quoted and everything else extrapolated around it, completely taking it out of its context, yeah. adding its own context so as to prove its point. Yeah. Yeah. And this is... And, and, I know we bang on about 1984 a lot, but Winston's yeah. job in, in the Ministry of Truth was literally to uh, take just generic historical facts and then implant certain details into it. Yeah. And even this, the very minute changes just morphs the entire truth of the past. Well, yeah, well, of course, another one of his jobs just quickly was to to go back also and to to change facts mm. so that um, so as to so that modern readers could um, not find out something that that once had been. And you, you wrote in a recent article, Luke, around Donald Trump, um, that they were trying to get rid of his his short cameo in 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 Home Alone, um, which is, <laughs> is both hilarious and also um, a stark similarity again to that form of vaporization as it's called I mean, well, well, tr trump trump was the 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 testing phase of this right i mean um if, 
think think back to um, the, the 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 fine people incident, which I mean, if you listen to the full context, he he wasn't referring to, you know, the, the people who riot in Charlottesville as being fine people. Like that was a complete spin of what he said. Um, but I think we we on the on the conservative side were 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 asleep on that, and we and the the, the precedent was set long before we, we we were aware of what was happening. I think part of the problem you say about conservatives being asleep for it, it's so hard to keep up with all of this. Um, I mean, so much of it happens on social media, which I think conservatives are less likely to be engaged on in any case, other than young Tories who I'm not sure exactly can. Um, and, and then, you know, every day a new figure is under attack for something they either have said or have been misinterpreted as having said, and the context is being changed. And, you can you can spaff a lot of words onto a blog, but what what difference does that make when it's it's not just the individuals um, who count in this, but the full context, the full acceptance that this is something which can happen, um, which is a much bigger problem to to target. I think with I mean, these stories, we, we always we always hear the high profile figures, the celebrities, the politicians, the journalists, but plenty of ordinary people are also brought before employment tribunals and cancelled that way. Of course, they're not high profile. It's difficult to hear about it. I know the Free Speech Union has done a good job on reporting these type of actions. But, I mean, I think cancel cultures, well, it happens to ordinary people. I mean, my... Uh, Football club Cambridge United banned a selection of fans for booing the BLM kneeling for the kickoff ceremony. So that's that was truly horrifying for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that um, people always talk about? Oh, J.K. Rowling isn't going to be hurt by this. It's fine. It doesn't exist. But what it does is it it again it, it creates the precedent that um, someone expressing an alternative viewpoint is fair game, um, and. You know, and it isn't always going to be you know a billionaire author like J.K. Rowling. It's going to be you know someone in the in the I don't know the accounting department of, of a small business. You know, it's it, and 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 that person has no recourse because there aren't you know legions of Twitterers who are going to jump to their defence. Mm. And also not the not the wealth um, in their in their pockets that even if they do get cancelled, they're fine. Yeah, I mean you'll you you you'll never see you know hashtag I stand with. Joe blogs on on Twitter. You know, it's, it's, uh, the average the average Joe is 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 powerless to stop this if it if it, if it comes for them. Um, and of course, the the average Joe it, it also appears as we we move away from the, the main free topics of the week and and go on to some small miscellaneous topics. That the average Joe might also be unable to prevent the government from uh, enforcing its vaccination program onto it, which is one of the one of the stories of this week and of really the past few months, which is really hotting up um the the idea of a vaccine passport is increasing more and more businesses including the the main uh, provider of private care homes in britain has said it will not employ people who do not take the vaccine um now i remember you you wrote luke in your your article in the december issue um that there's no reason not to trust the vaccine it's been approved by all the right figures that's all fine we agree with that but that it should still be a matter of personal choice if we are to call ourselves a, a, a liberal um, or rather a, 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 a liberty respecting nation. Do you think that's likely to happen or are we already too far down the other road? Yeah, we're, we're already too far gone at this point. The, the minute the government thought it could totally control our lives, how cancel culture is enforced, it's not enforced by the state, it's enforced by private corporations and an angry mob. And that'll be the same for the vaccine. I think if, if the government can just say to businesses, hey, get get your Amazon warehouse employees vaccinated, then what's the difference of, of um, the state doing it overtly? Yeah, it's, 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 almost, it's almost like an abusive spouse in that, you know, you can get these things, but you have to do this first. It's, you know, it, 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 there's a... You, know, you can have your life back as long as you sign up to X, X, and X, and, and the list of X gets bigger every time. I just I keep going back to this, but I mean, going from being told three weeks to stop the spread to to this, and it's it's funny because you know, I think the the use of the word uh, the phrase uh, 
conspiracy theorists has probably quadrupled in the last year, but with every new development, they become more and more vindicated. Yeah, on your on your uh, analogy, Sam, it's we either keep the cat or you're gone. You either keep your job um, and have the vaccine, or you don't. Uh, you either can travel and have the vaccine, or you can't. And of course, there's only so many things someone can say. Oh, I can live without that until it gets to the point where they think, actually, I've not got very much choice about this. And I think one of the major ones for people other than JK Rowling and some of the other rich examples we've talked about in the cancel culture segment are people who rely on their work in order to feed their families. They won't have a choice. Um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we, we all should take the vaccine. That's fine. I think most people accept that, you know, the vaccine is, is a good thing and that it's going to help with our uh, recovery from the last year of pandemic but still the matter of choice should remain firm in this stance i think and of course the, the government's latest threat uh, as as revealed by valance recently and also by boris is that if quote enough people don't vaccinate the easing of lockdown restrictions won't be as quick we'll have to stay in lockdown for longer which i said before we recorded is a sort of a, a bully ball a bully boy classroom uh, threat if one child speaks too loud whilst I'm teaching, or if one child's froze a piece of paper, you're all staying after class for an hour detention. Mm. It's, it's collective punishment, mm. as you said, Sam. And that might be fine for s small children in a classroom, but for a nation, I'm not sure. Maybe a bit too far. And, and I just also think it's a bit of a, of a divide and conquer tactic. If so many people people get the vaccine, which I think they will, that the government can say, okay, right, we may not, we won't continue for lockdowns, but we'll bring in immunity passports so you can go at the pub, go go to the job. That's that I think would be the second stage if uh, they fail on them, the lockdown tactics. Hmm. Yeah, and and one thing added from me is that when it comes to the coverage of the virus, it's interesting to me what bits of data we're being told on which bits we aren't. I mean, we're being told death toll, daily infections, but what we aren't being told is survival rate, which is still in the upper 90s. When you, when you consider, when you consider the, the fact that you have an overwhelming chance of, of, of recovering and surviving, it puts everything of the last year into real perspective. Yes, I think, I think the, the public discourse would be, would be very different if these sorts of statistics, as well as those relating to, to mental health uh, and mental and physical health job levels, were more widely discussed in all the press conferences, which we are we're allowed to enjoy uh, almost every day, it seems, at the moment. Um, but on that, I think we should wrap, wrap up this, uh, this week in review. Um, again, not the most positive one in terms of the vaccine passports and the continuation of lockdowns and cancelled culture, but we at least are still able to discuss it. We can still have a laugh about some elements of it, and until they stop us from doing that, we, uh, we continue living. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Bye.